Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today I'm in the HQ of SAD UK, which is an organisation run by Anne and John Jolly, who are with me today. So, welcome. Thanks, Morning. Paul. Morning. I should say, actually, I correct myself there, Anne uh, Jolly MBE and John Jolly MBE to be. So, con- <laughs> congratulations you. both Thank of you, you for those... Uh, Oh, walls are um, really quite something and something to be proud of. Um, John, you're you're about to get yours um, next couple of months, I understand. Yeah, I haven't got an exact date yet, but I was expecting it probably sometime during August. Uh huh. And Anne, you got yours uh, February two thousand seventeen. And what was that like? Oh, it's amazing. I, you know, obviously, never expected anything like that, but it was it was it was lovely, really. Um, just it was nice to be able to, you know, I felt that those having those initials might help with our campaigns and help to sort of push SAD UK a little bit further. People to, might give us a little bit more kudos, if you like. Um, but you know, personally, it was just a lovely surprise and nice, nice to have. Mm-hmm. And who did you get to meet when you were presented? Uh, Prince William. Mm-hmm. Yes, quite a bit taller than me, as I've seen from the DVD. <laughs> that is a yeah, good he was lovely, yeah. Yeah, it was a really, really lovely day. Yes. Yeah, he had yeah. a long conversation with you, didn't he? I had, a, I had quite a long conversation with him because his good friend Miles Frost died very suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, that was from uh, uh, HCM, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, I understand. So, um, anyway, we had, had uh, quite a chat actually, which was, uh, you know, quite surprising in, you know, being in that environment. But um, he was, he, he was, you know, um, pleased that we were doing as much research and everything that we're doing and trying to prevent these tragic young deaths, you know. He seems to be quite concerned or quite interested in sort of social health and mental health. Exactly, of. yeah. No, he was very interested. And John said I was probably speaking to him the longest one there, you know. So it was it, it was quite, you know, nice to be able to chat to him and to see his interest in what, what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's nice to be recognised by by the country, really, for for what you've been doing and all the uh, the time and the effort that you've been putting in. Can you actually sort of um, tell me a little bit about what you've actually been doing and sort of uh, the motivation for what you you started? Yeah. Well, um, sadly, our son Ashley died in 1998. He was just 16. Um, since that, we tried to find out the reason for his death because he was completely fit and healthy and um, it was so totally unexpected I mean he used to do the London Brighton bike ride with his dad uh, played football twice a week you know there was just nothing that, that you know sort of showed that he could possibly be at risk um, but then we went to we found out it was a uh, an arrhythmic death where a post-mortem nothing can be found we set up a website and when we set up the website, we had lots of people coming to us who had similar experiences and they were bewildered, obviously, and devastated and wondered, you know, why it had happened. So we were liaising with um, overseas, actually, the SADS Foundation, the Sudden Arrhythmic Death Syndrome Foundation. And they had um, a university there that were looking into a lot of the genetics of these conditions. And we suspect um, Ashley um, had... Uh, induced 
um, long QT from a hay fever medication he was taking. But from a lot of people, they can have this naturally, this interval in their heart rhythm that makes them um, susceptible to a sudden cardiac arrest or death. Um, and their factors like medication, um, shock, um, that can suddenly cause a sudden cardiac arrest and unfortunately sometimes sudden cardiac death. So we, we actually held the first SADS international conference with our people from over in the States, Italy, Canada. They all came over and we held a, conf- uh, a conference running simultaneously. One was for health professionals, GPs, and the other was for families. And it was a really, um, it was an enormous conference. It ran for two days. But from that, a lot of, a lot of information came out. A lot of people, um, families hadn't realized there was an inherited connection to some of these conditions. So after that, some people got, got their families tested and people were picked up. Um, we had a chap who was being diagnosed or well, being treated for epilepsy. And he'd taken one of our leaflets to his doctor and they found out he'd actually got the long QT syndrome. So he was then being treated for correctly for long QT and had an internal cardioverter defibrillator ICD fitted. Um, so there was a lot come from that first international conference. So from then on, we, because we were uh, funding research into these conditions, we were holding annual conferences to give updates on what was happening, basically. So a lot of our funds does go into the research side and looking at the genetics. At the beginning, you, you mentioned about uh, conditions. What, what are the conditions that sort of make up the SADS family? Um, they're, they're called the channelopathies. Um, there's the long QT syndrome, Brugada syndrome. I can't say the word, CPVT, um, ventricular tachycardia uh, syndrome. Wolf Parkinson White, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a, it's it can cause sudden arrhythmic death, but it isn't strictly just a um, a SADS condition because there is um, changes in the in the uh, there's a disarray of the muscle cells in the heart, so that isn't a strictly SADS one, but it does cause um, sudden cardiac death. There are some others, but um, they're, they're the main causes. So when you when you said you, you described them as being channelopathy, um, that uh, aff- affects the eye and pores of the of the heart, um, rather than uh, the morphology, the actual structure of the heart. So the, the structure of the heart's generally normal. Exactly, that? exactly. That's why at post mortem, nothing can be found. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when it is a, a channelopathy, very often people are um, sort of expect uh, suspected to have had the condition when they, uh, when the uh, cardiologists check other family members. If another family member has a specific condition that they're able to detect, then it's often suspected that the person who passed away may have died from that specific condition. Mm-hmm. They'll use a whole barrage of tests to, to check someone after there's been a sudden death to see whether they might too have the same condition. And then, then if they have, it, it can be treated. Is, it, is this a relatively new area of cardiology, do you think, that people are becoming aware of all of these various um, syndromes? 
It it is um, in the in medical terms. It is. Um, we held the first conference, I think, in two thousand and two, and a lot of these, um, a lot of the genetics were, and the um, the way genes express themselves were coming to light at that time. And since that time, there's been lots more work done, um, especially over in the UK. There were genetic knowledge parks set up. The Department of Health put a lot of money into genetic knowledge parks. Um, we worked with the John Radcliffe, uh, which was then called, well, part of it was the Oxford Genetics Knowledge Park. At one time, when um, when there was a sudden uh, cardiac death, the genes were sent over to Italy to be examined. But then once the knowledge parks um, were set up, uh, the John Radcliffe in particular were able to go through a sequence of genes to detect whether they a person had a faulty mutation. So it was a lot quicker to um, able to assess other family members genetically. Do you know what conditions that they're able to check for using genes? Um, well, they're finding new new genetic mutations all the time, but um, you know, long QT, all the ones I mentioned before, Brugada, CPVT. Um, there's a lot of work goes into it, and also into knowing. They will do target, targeted screening, which is when you've had a sudden death or if somebody within a family is detected with a condition is the most important sort of genetic testing because they can find out where the fault is in the mutation and see whether other family members have got that same fault. And then because they've come from the same family, they, can, they make a bit of an assumption that possibly that condition could affect them. But that it, it's there's a lot of factors that they take into account. Are, are all those sort of, um, or are all the conditions in the sort of SADS family hereditary? Are they all passed on, or um, about eighty percent, I believe, are hereditary. Um, others uh, are rogue mutations. So for um, for your family, did you go through that process? We of... went, yeah, we went through the process, but it was what they call a, we believe it was acquired or induced. Oh, because of uh, the um, because medication. Because of the medication. So uh, he may have been susceptible as, as well. He may have had a long QT interval and that medication extended it even further, causing mm-hmm. the problem. Yeah, so back, back in 1998, genetics testing wasn't something that was regularly available on the NHS. Uh, you had to try and find a cardiologist or a doctor that would do it as a research project. So we we had our younger son um, checked and uh, blood samples, etc. were sent over to the US to one of the researchers there. So uh, to to get a test, is it just a, a, a blood sample, is it, do you know? Yeah, yeah, I believe it's, it's just a, a blood sample, obviously, that they will then, um, you know, assess it and uh, evaluate, go through the DNA, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know what the situation is in the UK now for people getting tested? Because I know in, in my in the FCA UK group, it seems to be a little bit of a lottery depending mm. on where you are. Is that your impression as well? Um, I think they like to be able to find some sort of indication clinically before they will look at it, um, look, look at the genes. Um, apart from if obviously there is somebody else in the family that where they've already... Um, identified there's a, a faulty gene 
uh, faulty mutation there. Um, I think it, it well, it's an expensive procedure. I understand, so they need to know a little bit about what they think they're looking for. I think in advance. Other, you know, there's an awful lot to go through yeah, to actually screen for needle in a haystack. A needle in a haystack, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah but if you look at chapter eight, then there are pathways in chapter eight which which tell you medical medical people what sort of help they should be offering. And again, as Anne's saying, that 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 would provide checks for the whole family of somebody who has either passed away, unfortunately. And after they've passed away, they've been able to find out what mutation they had or has shown some other clinical problem while they're still alive, which again has uh, showed that they may have LQT3 or LQT7. But as long as as the people know roughly what they're looking for, rather than just uh, the big needle and haystack sort of thing. Um, you touched on something called Chapter 8 there. Can you uh, tell us a little bit more what Chapter 8 is? I haven't heard that before. So NSF Chapter 8, um, there's a National Service Framework um, which gives guidelines to um, general practitioners. And in that, there's lots of different chapters. There was a chapter about heart disease uh, and about the structure of the heart and sort of lifestyle, that sort of thing. But there wasn't anything purely about arrhythmias where um, the heart is quite normal and people are fit and vibrant and there's actually no lifestyle issue. Um, They purely had an arrhythmia uh, and and sadly some of them caught sudden cardiac death. So a new chapter was brought in. We worked with cardiologists around the country to work out this new chapter on uh, trying to help people go through a proper pathway where they were picked up. Um, If there'd been a sudden cardiac death, relatives were picked up, or if they'd been detected with one of the conditions that we cover, other family members would also be checked out. Um, And that was really quite an important piece of work. And then the, then, uh, the chapter was brought out, and now actually a lot more people are being tested where there's inherited cardiac condition and a lot more people are being um, picked up now. You, you've talked about the sort of various conditions and that. Um, if, if anyone's listening and think, oh, maybe I've got LQTS, but I haven't been diagnosed with are, are there what sort of um, obvious symptoms are there that people might, might know about? Right. Uh, long QT syndrome is very often a sudden collapse it's not like the usual um, sort of vasovagal faint where you don't feel all that well. You might feel a bit sick and then you, you pass out. It's when, you, you know, quite often it's even during sport, you might just drop um, for a few seconds. And then you come round and you don't know what happened. Um, that is a typical long QT um, symptom. And that should be checked out. Go to the GP, ask them to refer the, you to a um Preferably an electrophysiologist. Um, you might get referred to a cardiologist first, probably would do. But an electrophysiologist actually specialises in abnormal heart rhythms um, rather than a cardiologist may not have that specialist expertise. He may do, but um, electrophysiologists actually, you know, major in that sort of um, uh, area. 
at specialization presumably people go on to have further tests to find out apart from the, are there other tests that people can have for LQTS and Brugard and things like yeah, that? Yeah, there'd be um, a whole, they call it an electrophysiology or an EP study where they will have uh, quite a lot of different tests uh, and obviously they'll ask them lots of different questions about personal history, family history, um, but that is an in-depth, um, takes about th- three hours, something like that, to actually really look thoroughly at somebody's heart and their rhythm and, you know, what what could be causing any problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, the, the testing normally would be like a stress test ECG where you'd have your, uh, all your ECG probes put on you and then you'd have to go on like treadmills, things like that. So they, they, they try and induce the LQT through, through exercise. Uh, if, if they still haven't managed to induce it uh, and they need to do um, further testing, then they've got various drugs that they can administer, things like flecainide, uh, which will in- induce the long QT. And is that, is that an- adjumaline? Yeah, yeah, adjumaline as well. Is, I think it's quite commonly used, yeah. Of the, we talked a little bit about LQTS. Is that the most common um, channelopathy? It does, yes. I, I believe LQTS is, yeah, yeah. And what um, about Brugada? Brugada is probably the second most um, prominent one, I would imagine. Yeah, because that, that was that was featured on EastEnders a few years ago when is it Kush? I think it is. Right. I don't know if yes. you ever saw that. I, I, I was heard little, about it. I didn't actually There was a little bit of sort yeah. of, uh, I wouldn't say uproar is the right word, but mm-hmm. where this uh, the, the character collapsed in the um, in the square and then fortunately someone recognised it and did CPR and he survived. But he, he yeah. was like implanted with an ICD almost straight away and back in the uh, square like the next week as right. if nothing had happened. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's typical uh, television scenario. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. Not, not quite yeah. matching. And he knew no. the answer straight away, which I would yes, imagine. Yes, it would have taken, yes, it would have, have gone through a whole pathway trying to find out exactly what was wrong with him, yeah. It would have taken a little bit to identify that Brugada you- diagnosis, I think. How long typically do you know? Oh, it's it's difficult to tell. Um, I think it's a you know it dip, months. Probably. It could possibly be months. Yeah, yeah, yeah because yeah, months, yeah, yeah. I would say more. yeah, something like that. Yeah. Thanks for all of that. Um, so, so Sad's charity. Um, I imagine you've done quite a lot in your twenty odd years, or almost twenty years since yeah. since you've set up. Can you sort of? Tell us a little bit about the things that you've been doing. To, you already touched on some of them, yeah. but um, some of yeah. the other things. Yeah, so the conferences, um, as I say, they're they fairly important with the medical updates. We've been funding the research. We work with, um, as I say, the Oxford Genetics Knowledge Park when that was first started up. Um, we work with the Institute of Medical Genetics in Cardiff, uh, the Bristol Institute, Manchester, we've done quite a lot of work with all the major heart centres, really. We've done quite a lot of work with Patworth Hospital. That's, yes, that's quite a main one. And that's um, Dr. Andrew Grace there, who's done a lot of work um, with the devices, the ICDs. Um, what work has Dr. Grace done? Um, he's, he's, he's a lot of research into uh, 
long QT and the electrics of the heart. Um, but he was also quite involved in the development of, um, I don't know if you've heard of a subcutaneous ICD. Yes, yes, yes. Um, quite a few members of the, they the group got have them. got those. Yeah. Um, so he was involved right from the beginning, I believe, with the, the SC um, ICD, which doesn't have the leads. It's, it's uh, the actual device is a little bit bigger. Or it, it began, it started off quite a bit bigger than the normal ICD that people are implanted with. Um, but it's slightly, it's bigger. But the, the good part about it is it doesn't have the leads. So it's good for children, but the only problem being it's that much bigger. So, um, I think they're continually looking at how to develop that and make that improve. Well, they're always looking at ways to improve the treatment for people who've got devices. Uh, and also obviously the medication that they're giving them. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it, it doesn't have the leads that go in the heart is what yeah. you mean, isn't it? Cause yes. It's, oh, sorry, yes. It does have a lead oh, that yes, goes up across to create a pathway yeah. for the the uh, energy yeah, to exactly. cross. Exactly, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. That's right, and there's, yeah. there's, there's less complications with, yes. with the yeah. heart, isn't there? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And I believe Dr. Um, Grace is coming to our conference in September. That's right, yes, yes. Yes, yes I think, you know, he's quite... Looking forward to meeting with the SCA UK members and uh, speaking to them about the electrics of the heart and electrophysiology and all the studies he's done, that sort of thing. So and if I'm you, sure your members will have questions for him as well. Absolutely. And yeah. uh, particularly so, I didn't know about his uh, involvement with the SICED. So yes, if yeah. someone's got an SICED oh, yeah. and they've got any questions about that, it'd be mm. an ideal person yeah, to yeah. actually oh, yeah. speak to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, You got involved quite in depth with the development of that device. So just as a, a, a recap, on the 28th of September, Saturday 28th of September, we're holding a uh, conference and party at the Barnsdale Hall Hotel in Oakham, which is on the Rutland Water, beautiful setting, and uh, we've got a day full of uh, lots of interesting talks and uh, sessions, interactive sessions with various people, including John and Anne and uh, Dr. Grace and um, Dr. Keeble, possibly myself. Um, um, lots of people, and we've got some great talks of fatigue, one on fatigue, one on uh, memory as well, with some uh, Sort of some of the leading people in, in not only the country but in the world on those subjects, and and I say we'll be having a, a fab day, and a, in the evening there'll be a party as well to let your hair down. Mm. And if uh, that's anything, last year's one's anything to go by. It's going to be a great day. It, it will be. It will be brilliant. It was lovely at the GWR, the Guinness World Record, to see all the. 100, 127, wasn't it? Um, people who'd had cardiac arrests all getting together and speaking to each other. And uh, that everyone we spoke to said they get an awful lot out of the day. So hopefully you should have, you know, well, I'm sure there'll be plenty of people coming to Oakham. I've been to Barnsdale Hotel. It's beautiful there. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah I went setting. there a little while ago and it was a, it's a beautiful setting. Yeah for people to be able to relax and perhaps feel a little bit at ease with because essentially you're, you're going to something for a lot of people who uh, perhaps in a little bit of a vulnerable state and they don't perhaps want to talk about it but I think when you get in that environment and you realize 
lots of other people have been through exactly the same thing as you have. It, it makes you able to open up a little bit easier, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I, th- I think that's it. And people can open up if they want to, and even if they don't want to. it's. I think there's a feel about being with other people who actually understand, you know. Um, we hold retreats for people who've had a sudden death. And, um, you know, we don't sit there crying all the time. We might cry at times, but... It's just that feeling of being with people who've been through the same thing as yourself. Um, so I think that's quite powerful. And although people, I know people have been reluctant to come along and they've said, oh, thank goodness we did. And I imagine it's pretty much the same scenario with cardiac arrest survivors. Yes. You know, it's a very, it, it's a life-changing experience. and It's something obviously difficult to deal with, but to be among people who understand it, it's, 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 it's got to help. I'm sure it would do. Yeah, we do. We got a lot of feedback last year from people saying, oh, I was worried about coming, but just being with people who get it, putting yeah. air quotes around, get it, that uh, made, made a big difference to their, to their life and their recovery, basically. Yes. Yeah. It helps them to, to move on. It's, uh, so I'm not closing a stage of it, but it it's, uh, certainly puts it in context. There are yes. lots of people who are, who are perhaps a little bit further on than they are in their recovery and mm. they've gone on to sort of attain a new a new normal which is perfectly livable and uh, you know maybe different to how their normal was yeah. before but um yeah and from people who talk to us sometimes they feel a bit guilty because they say well I should be feeling great because people tell me I should be feeling happy and pleased that I've I'm living I'm lucky I'm the lucky one but you know, it doesn't work like that. You've still had a, a, a you know, a traumatic experience, a life-changing experience. And, you know, there's a lot to assimilate, a lot to get used to. The family's got got to get used to the idea of what's happened. They might have witnessed it and they might, you know, they're, they're finding it quite difficult. So, you know, it, it is important that, that these people get the care and support that they need. I mean, as you know, SAD UK will help people who've had a cardiac arrest and we'll organise counselling with somebody who's experienced will understand um, or will do their best to understand how the person is feeling and try to help them, try to support them during those difficult times. Might be times they don't want to reach out to their family because they're trying to protect their family from the way they're feeling. Or it could be a family member who's trying to protect the person who had the cardiac arrest from how they're feeling. Everyone's trying to protect one another, but at the same time, you're all feeling quite vulnerable and sort of going through uh, a difficult time. So, you know, support is is very important, really. Absolutely, and you you sum that up very well. And if people want to access the support that um, SADS can provide via the council, which is fantastic, thank you very much for doing that, how how would they uh, achieve that? Well, if they just wanted to email us on info at sadsuk.org and um, we'll, we'll liaise with them, you know, obviously find somebody in their area and um, we can organise sort of up to six sessions for them. Okay, so we're, we're down in do Essex, that. so it, it, they wouldn't have to come to Essex, it'd be someone... No, no. Someone, someone in their area, yeah. And are yeah. they uh, someone who's specialised in um, this sort of event or would it be... It would be someone who's... Um, a, uh, BACP accredited and will have had uh, a lot of experience. Um, they would have probably had quite a few years of experience and 
part of that experience would be to understand what it's like to ha- to live with a health condition um, and to understand the f- feelings around vulnerability, anxiety. Um, not necessarily a cardiac arrest, but that they may have, but they will definitely have be very experienced counsellors who who will you know put tr- put themselves in your shoes and do their best to support you. But uh, it's probably worth pointing out there probably are very few counsellors who've got that much experience with cardiac arrest survivors or yeah. their family members because mm. there aren't that really that many of us around, are they? No, no, not really, no. Um, you know, but they would probably have experienced some sort of um, counselling with people with some sort of trauma, um, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So with all the, their uh, learning and everything and their understanding, I believe they would be able to support somebody oh, absolutely, who came to yeah. them. And the thing is, everybody's human. If they didn't get on with that particular counsellor, we can always change them. You know, if they didn't think that was working for them, there's other avenues you can go down. You know, they've got to value themselves as a person and say, actually, this isn't working for me. All right, come back to SAD UK. We'll find somebody else for you. Okay, that's great. And just to reiterate, it's it's not just for the survivor. It's for... No. For a partner or, or family member. That's right, absolutely, yeah. Because we do yes. know that many family members are active in the resuscitation and exactly, yeah. that quite be, yeah. can be quite a traumatic yeah. experience. So you were talking about the other things that SADs have done or uh, are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk yeah. a little bit more about those? Yeah. Um, we're, we're, one of the uh, big campaigns we started off some years ago was putting defibrillators into schools because we were finding that um, where our members had an inherited cardiac condition and the child had got the, the condition or might have been suspected to have had the condition, the, they were worried about when they started school because obviously they're out of their sight. So we, we used to go along with the ambulance service to the school, speak to the head teacher, the nurse there, and show them the defibrillator, how it worked, um, and try to get them into the schools, which was quite difficult at that time because there was lots of problems with people not knowing, number one, what they were, scared about litigation, um, scared about doing something, using it incorrectly, using the defibrillator incorrectly. But we started off getting them into schools where we knew there was a child with a condition or suspected with a condition. But then we were contacted, obviously, by people whose child had had a cardiac arrest at school. Uh, so we knew then that as it's like a main hub of the community, in a sense, you get so many people going to a school that you've got all the teachers there, you've got all the staff, um, you've got the parents coming in daily. Uh, it made sense to have a defibrillator actually in the school. So we started off a campaign called the SAD UK Big Shot campaign. The big shot being that schools didn't already have the defibrillator. And we're trying to get them into the, all the schools. We wanted to get legislation. We wanted the government to legislate for that. Um, we haven't been able to manage that. We had a petition. We went down in street. Um, but from that, and we provided evidence from that, we were able to get um, guidance saying that schools should consider defibrillators as part of their first aid equipment. And they uh, gave a... Um, a short summary of what a defibrillator did and how important it was and if the school 
did put a defibrillator in place. They should let the ambulance service know where it was located. So that was a big step forward. And we'd been working with lots of schools, obviously, before that time. And that pushed a lot of schools to come back to us. And we were then putting more in. Um, we still would like to see them in all the schools. But um, there's a, a lot more schools now that are putting them in place. And obviously, we, we do the training as well, just to make people feel more confident with using it. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's been really good. We don't just put them in schools. We've been putting them in other areas as well. Gyms, um, workplaces. Actually, we'll work with anybody who wants to put a defibrillator in place. You, you said that originally there was a lot of resistance. Well, I, I understand that because I experienced that when I went to my son's school after it happened to me as yeah. well. And uh, but how, how is it now? Are people more receptive to it? Oh, it's changed completely, I would say. I'd say It's unusual to get a school that's not interested in having a defibrillator now. Um, yeah, I'd say, um, what, especially, I mean, we'll go along there and we'll demonstrate it, show them the automated defibrillator. Because I think in a lot of people's minds, they're still imagining that you've got to be a medical uh, professional to use them. But the technology is advanced much more than, obviously, naturally people's perception of what a defibrillator has and because sad you are working with them all defibrillators and people all the time obviously we know how easy it is but the defibrillator will talk to you tell you what to do it won't give us shock unless it needs to so they're absolutely safe and the ambulance services actually endorse putting the defibrillators in place because they know that when they attend a scene if somebody's been doing cpr and used the defib they're more likely to get a, you know, a, a positive outcome. Because so, we, we, we know every minute or every second uh, counts, exactly. doesn't it? And so yeah. I think there's a stat about every for every minute passes, it, the chance of being resuscitated goes Decreases down. Decreases 10%, yeah, That's yeah, fine. yeah. Um, and we, we've also, um, we put them in public places as well. Um, John, my husband John, who uh, is a design engineer, um, well, used, you know, he's, he's retired now, but he developed a cabinet and um, he's constantly updating the cabinet, looking at um, the design of it and how it works. But we're getting lots of uh, cabinets being organised now, aren't we? Yeah. So John could tell you a little bit more about the uh, the cabinet for the defibrillator. Well, the, ca the cabinets are, are waterproof so that uh, they can be outside in the rain without any problems. They're also heated so that um, during the winter time they they always stay just a little bit above zero so that everything stays nice and functional. Now that they're yeah so they're yeah so they've been um, carefully developed, but they get we're getting out into the community. We're getting parish councils contact us. Um, where else? The village hall. They're going on village halls, aren't they? Yeah, churches. Churches. The schools now. We're trying to get the schools to put them outside. A lot of the places now are putting them outside their uh, premises so that not only can they use them, but they're also available to the public sort of 24-7. And each one we put in place, we organise to go uh, onto the, uh, to be registered with the ambulance service, uh, goes on their computer-aided dispatch so that if anybody calls the ambulance, they can let them know that there is a defibrillator in a certain vicinity and they can um, obtain that defibrillator and use it. 
So there's a lot more going on in the community now. I think there's more awareness needed to let people know that in an emergency, anyone can use them. They're not just for uh, professionals and for people who know how to use them because, as mentioned before, it will tell you what to do and you can't do anything wrong. You can only save somebody with a defibrillator. Yeah, I think, I think yes, that's a very good point. I think maybe it's a, a, another idea for a podcast, actually, where we... We uh, crack open a, a defib and uh, perhaps uh, get, yeah, go through that the, uh, a good idea. The, the the actual what happens when you you open it up and put it on um, someone or presumably you wouldn't put it on someone to test it, but a, a dummy or whatever, and mm. we can go through what that is. So yeah, if you've got another free slot for me. <laughs> but going back to um, what you've been saying, it sounds fantastic. You've been getting out. Do you know how many defibs you've got out into the wild now since you've been doing this? There'll be thousands, won't there? Because we, with the defibrillators that we've actually, you know, done ourselves, those that we've worked with schools to put in place, the cabinets that have gone out there. Um, how many? There's thousands of cabinets that have been produced, think, isn't think there? There's over 3,000 cabinets. Oh, so. well, in that case, it's more than that then. And so I guess not, lot, not everyone's had a cabinet, have they? With their, with their device. No, no. So there's 3,000 cabinets, so they've all gone out, so they'll all have had defibrillators in them, won't they? Yeah. And then there's all the defibrillators we've done from, yeah, from the office. That aren't in cabinets. That aren't in cabinets, that are in schools and in various, you know, workplaces, that sort of thing. You don't have your own defibrillator, do you? you no, use, no. You source those from No, we use, we use the main manufacturers, the ones that the ambulance services use. And what brands so, would they be? Well, there's the Zoll, the um, Life Pack, uh, the iPad. What else is there? Uh, Cardiac Science, yeah. Yeah, the G5. Striker. Yeah. So mm -hmm. they're all ones that are used, you know, in the community. So a, a common uh, question in, in the group, uh, the Southern Cardiac Arrest UK support group, is that quite often when a person's got uh, a little bit along the, along the recovery path, they want to give something back. And yeah. one of the obvious ways to give back is to um, put a, a, an AED into their community. So... What would they need to do and how much money are we talking about for all of that? Um, you're talk, talking around about uh, 1600 for like what they call a CPAD, Community Public Access Defibrillator. So that would be the defibrillator, the cabinet, installing it, training. training. So that would all be a complete package. Yeah. And in installing it, is that going to cost extra as well? What, no, what well, is involved in the installation process? A qualified, a qualified electrician would need to put it in place um, and they would commission that themselves, but that would all be included. That, that 1600 would cover that as well. And so that, what would they, they'd be looking for a, a spot on a, ideally on an a, outside wall? Ideally on an, on an outside wall, they'd need access to, uh, is it 240? Yeah. 240 volts. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's um, just a sort of normal household or the sort of domestic plug sockets. Could you put a branch off of that or something? Uh, yeah, normal uh, domestic socket with a uh, RCB connection. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so you get some cabling, put it through, you put your yeah. box on the wall. Yeah. Um, and then the defib lives inside of that. Is that connected up to the power or is the power just to keep the uh, the temperature at an ambient level? The, uh, just to keep the cabinet um, and the temperature inside at an ambient level. 
because otherwise the um, electrodes, the pads that adhere to the patient, they can deteriorate if it goes sort of below freezing for any amount of time. They just crack up. Okay. So it just needs to be kept at a reasonable temperature. That only goes on if it gets really, really cold, the uh, heating. It's just uh, on a thermostat. The, the, the defibrillator isn't charged from the mains power supply. No, the defibrillator is standalone, isn't it? It's got a lithium battery, I understand. Yeah. Um, they need to be replaced every four to five years. Um, and with, I think, ev I think I'm right in saying every defibrillator, the pads, the electrodes I spoke about, they need to re be replaced every two years because as the gel on them deteriorates over time. And what sort of cost are we talking for that? Oh, they all they all vary a little bit actually. The the pads vary quite a bit. So uh, uh, I'd say eighty pound round about something like that every couple of years. Is that including the battery as well, or? Um, with the life pack, £80 includes the charge stick to charge up the battery. Um, but on the others, the, bat the battery is independent, and so you might be looking at, I think, a couple of hundred for the batteries. People would need to check that out. So yeah. it's, it's worth bearing in mind that once you've bought it, oh, yeah. you, you, need to, you need to maintain it. Maintain it's not, it. not a lot in the big scheme of things, but you need to put a plan in place to to make sure you've got some money to cover the pads and battery. Yeah. And, uh, as well as the sort of financial implications, uh, is there any, um, do you need people checking them or making sure that the battery is fully topped up and stuff like that? Yeah, it should be checked weekly. I mean, basically, it's just a visual check. You just, well, um, you'll see a red light come up. They make it fairly obvious if there's anything wrong with the defibrillator. That should only come up when it's looking at it needs new pads or battery. But if there should be any other um, calls, uh, again, you know, they should let us know if they've bought it from us or let the manufacturers know and uh, get that sorted out. So would, would if the light was showing that it needed the battery charging, is it are the batteries rechargeable? Do you just take it indoors and then plug it into a charger so it tops it up again or or is it a replacement of that battery? Um, with the life pack, um, it's a charge stick which recharges up the battery that's already there. So you get a, a charge stick and pads. Um, with the others, it's, you just slot these in. They're just like cartridges. Uh, and the same is with the, the cardiac science. The, the, the Zoll has its own batteries, doesn't it? You just input them yourself. The, the batteries, they're very simple to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you don't, don't need to be an expert to sort of... No, no, no. Sort of ...keep any of this running or anything like that. No, no. No, not at all. And so you said £1,600 and then a couple of hundred other pounds for the pads and batteries. Are you talking, say, maybe two grand over a couple of years? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Okay, that's yeah. not too bad, is no. it? No, no, not really. And um, with the sort of relatively recent announcement in um, in the government that they are going to uh, make CPR training and AED awareness in schools, um, how do you think SADs are going to be able to play a part in that? Um, well, we, we're already sort of looking at sort of... Um, working out a model of training uh, locally. As you mentioned, Dr. Keeble, we're 
we're look, look working with him at the moment to um, find a way to sort of train the uh, year 10 uh, school students and to keep that um, momentum going so that every child in the school learns CPR and understands how to use the defibrillator so that once we've got that going we will roll that out to other areas of the country is the idea um, so yeah it's the importance of I mean already youngsters are getting aware of what a defibrillator is because they're seeing more of them around um, so it will be that awareness program it will be seeing the defibrillator seeing how easy it is to use and um, also showing other people how to use it as well what, what's your impression of, of youngsters when they see a defib and uh, are they familiar with it? Is it just another bit of tech? Are they are they understanding um, of the value of it? Not just the, the financial value, no, but no. what it can do. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, in Wales, we've got a community public access defibrillator officer who goes around to the schools and actually te- trains the children of all ages. And they they absolutely love it. They find it so simple to use. I mean... They've been brought up in an era where it's all about technology, isn't it? Computers and things like that. And um, they're very keen. They're very enthusiastic. Uh, and with the younger ones, although they may not have the physical momentum behind them to actually carry out a proper CPR, they just learn the technique of how to do it. And they can go back and show parents and older older uh, siblings so yeah, it's 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 amazing how they just just like a duck to water, really. Youngsters, they they seem to embrace it and understand what it's about and what they need to do. With with regards to the teaching of CPR in schools being mandatory, I'm imagining that the government aren't putting in a load of money to actually give everyone an AED. So. Are schools still going to have to raise their own funds to buy an AED and maintain it? Basically, yes. So yeah, it, yeah. If, if, the, if anyone was out there and they wanted to get one, they should contact you? Yeah, I mean, we uh, we have a list of all different fundraising ideas for, for schools. I mean, we know, appreciate schools are all of different sizes, but the senior schools, for instance, they can have a non-uniform day. A pound a child that practically, you know, it buys a defibrillator. Lots of, lots of schools have done that, but um, you know they do dress uh, various uh, sports days, um, sponsored events, that sort of thing. Fates. There's so many ways they can raise the funds towards a defibrillator, and uh, we help them put it in place. You know, we also organise a press release if they're having any events. We can organise a press release to get people more involved with what they're doing and hopefully raise more funds towards the defibrillator rotary clubs and all the various uh, uh, masonic clubs those sort of people are always good to approach or quite helpful if they know a school's proactive in raising the funds so there's lots of ways that if they want to get a defibrillator they can make it happen Okay, yeah. so and that applies to anyone, anyone in their community, not just schools. If yeah, so yeah. If, if they need or they want to get one set up in their community, they just get in contact with you with the with the um, address that you mentioned the, earlier. The info at yes. sadduk. Yeah, yeah. Org. That's right, and we can we can we provide leaflets and little promotional items free of charge to help them raise the funds, and we can do posters that sort of thing for them. So. 
We've worked with lots of schools in that way to get the defibrillator, get the funds together. Do you, are you able to help with people who want to put them in a public place, but they need to go through a process to, from their local council to be able to uh, get approval? I've seen some places where um, councils have not wanted it because they consider maybe it's unsightly or something like that. Yeah, with the, with the cabinets as well, um, they're able to sort of, I mean, in... Um, Green spaces, for instance, of areas of natural beauty, they don't always want a bright yellow cabinet. So we can manufacture one-offs in different colours that might fit the environment better. So a green cabinet for sort of more uh, natural places. And uh, with the cabinets, sometimes, yeah, councils can be very picky about um, putting them in place. They don't always want it to stand out too much. Um, so in National Trust places, we um, can give them a green cabinet so it fits in with the environment a bit better. In uh, listed areas, we can sort of do a freestanding arrangement so it's not bolted to a wall. Yeah, so it's helpful because uh, you know a lot of people have um, interesting scenarios where they are. Because I have actually seen people bolting to their own houses as well, yeah. which is very uh, community-spirited of them. Yeah. <laughs> What are your thoughts on uh, whether a cabinet should be locked or not? It's preferable that they're unlocked. I mean, you've obviously got, with an unlocked cabinet, there's a certain amount of risk of um, vandalism, theft, etc. But from what we can gather from all the manufacturers, uh, the actual number of defibs they sell as replacements uh, after vandalism is only something like 2, 2 percent of the total number of Deep sold, so it's quite small, but uh, but can 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 be quite a major problem. Uh, so lock, lock, lock it, locking the cabinet has the advantage that you keep somebody away from it, but you then got the disadvantage that they've got the phone. Well, they've got, they've got the phone nine in anyway, but they've got to take a code from the nine nine operator, remember it, type it in, and get the defib out. And when you're in a panic, all those little things sort of can, can delay the process of getting the defibrillator slightly. So the, the, rec the recommendation is to have them unlocked. But you, you obviously just got to play, play that with, with general security risk in your area. Do you know if there's uh, insurance policies that people can get to cover those? Uh, yes. Um, part, part of the... Normally, if it's sort of council or school or something, it, it's like the equivalent of your household policy, uh, like insuring a bike or something in your back garden. Um, it just become an extension of those sorts of policies. Um, a couple of years ago, we, we well, you, we talked about it earlier. The uh, light at the end of the tunnel conference, and uh, you've had several conferences um, revolving around. SADS and cardiac arrest, and you've you've helped support um, sudden cardiac arrest in that um, respect as well. Where we had where we had some of the early the meetups where we needed a little bit of funding. You were kind enough to support that, and you've also gone on to support us with a, a leaflet that people can uh, that you've had printed up for us. And we've I think we've had about ten thousand printed of those that can be distributed among, amongst um, 
cardiac facilities across the country. So if you you want any of those leaflets, it just describes a little bit about the group and uh, what we do and uh, helps people find out about the group. So if you want any leaflets to put in your area, um, please contact SADS at the email address we gave earlier, which is info at sadsuk.org. Um, and yeah, as touched on earlier, you helped out at the Guinness World Record and you'll be helping again in, in September. So that, all of those things are, are fantastic. So thanks very much for your support of um, SEA UK. But also some of those conferences that we've been at, you've also have a, an evening function where you um, celebrate people who have uh, helped save someone else's life. Can you tell me, tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, um, but it's, it's actually it's our tenth year this year with our Lifesaver Awards. Um, we it's, it, it's just been so great to hear about people picking up the defibrillator and using it and saving a life. And we've heard of so many different sort of scenarios um, from sort of people builders uh, who were building by Harrods and somebody had a cardiac arrest and they got the uh, Harrods defibrillator and resuscitate them and is that a gold plated one <laughs> <laughs> should be shouldn't it and um the, the firefighters where they've attended a scene where a car's gone into flames and they've, the person's in cardiac arrest and they've used the defibrillator because a lot of the first response vehicles now have their defibrillators on on board which is a which is a which is great um uh, farmers have, have used the de- all different walks of life. And I think I'm just really what I'm trying to, to sort of say here is that anyone can use a defibrillator and they are, you know, people are, are being brave and they're using them. Uh, in fact, you don't have to be brave to use them, but you know, they're taking that, that initiative. Um, and, and the lifesaver awards is really a lovely time to be able to sort of acknowledge what they've done. Um, we have a cardiologist there. Um, community first responders, cardiac arrest uh, UK come along, uh, and it's a really lovely evening to be able to sort of honour these people. It's quite emotional because we try to get the uh, lifesaver and the person they've saved come along as well. And sometimes they might not have seen each other since the event, so it is quite an emotional evening. Dr. Hilary Jones, our patron, um, presents the awards. But I just really wanted to say that, you know, it is happening in the community. People are saving lives and we're pleased to be able to honour those people. And hopefully with the media attention on all of that, more people will now be, um, you know, will now think to themselves, right, I can do that. I can go and pick up the nearest defibrillator. I can do CPR. I can save someone's life. Yeah, it's absolutely yeah. fantastic evening. I've been uh, party to a couple of times uh, I think it's brilliant that you're um, recognising people and giving them awards like that. And uh, it's great to bring, like you say, it's great to bring the um, survivors and their saviours together. Yes. And yeah. uh, I know from personal experience, it's a, it's a great experience and it's a real win-win. And uh, I think last year there were some young people involved in the save as well, which was really good. Or, or several times I've seen young people yes. who have been there, so yeah. it's really good for them. It is. Um, it is. And talking about young people again, we sort of talk, talk about the schools, but I know there's another sort of a nationwide event. I think it might even be international now. The, the um, Restart a Heart Day. Can yeah. you tell me your involvement in that? Yeah, that's right. Um, 
It's now um, the World Restart Heart Day. I think they've done nine Restart Heart Days in Europe, but now it's the, it's a world one, um, and this is the second one, I believe. And we're involved working with the East Midland Ambulance Service. And John, you can say a little bit more about the World Restart Heart Day. Yeah, well, the East Midland Ambulance Service have got together a whole group of people. Uh, got all, all the fire services, they've got the police services, uh, they've got uh, youth councils, etc., and charities like SAD UK. And we're all getting together to contact schools, uh, particularly in the, uh, the upper years, so we're getting the sort of 10, 14 year olds. Um, and on World Start Heart Day, There'll be teams of people from all these different organisations all going into each of these schools and providing uh, CPR training and defib uh, um, familiarisation uh, during the day for, for that for that day. Yes. It, it is across the the whole country though, isn't it, or across the oh, whole yeah. world? So yeah, yeah, all the different ambulance services will right. be involved, I'm sure. And I remember, I think it was last year, I remember reading somewhere that it was like 200,000 kids taught in one yes. day or something like yeah. that, yeah. which I is staggering, really. Last year, yeah, was the, was the most, you know, they've ever done. Obviously, it's building year on year, so um, it really is good, good initiative, yeah. So yeah. If, if, if anyone was at a school and they didn't know about it, how could they get um, their school involved? Um well, if they wanted to contact us, we can put them in contact with their um, ambulance service who, who will be involved in, in doing something in their area. So if they'd contacted us as, at the info at sadsuk.org and we can put them in contact with someone who would be able to help. So are all ambulance areas in the UK involved, you know? I believe most are, yes. And yeah. what about internationally? You, you said it's world. Do you know what countries um, are also oh, involved? I couldn't read off all the countries <laughs> to you, but uh, it is a, it's an enormous initiative now. Will yeah. it be in the States and uh, Australia? I believe so, yeah. I believe so. Going, going from the stats that I've seen from the podcast, mm -hmm. the, the sort of uh, people who listen are mainly in the UK, as you would expect, mm -hmm. but also, yeah. also in the States and Australia. Right. Right. Although I have got a few in Africa as well, so hello to okay. those. <laughs> <laughs> Far and, and wide, and yes. Well, yeah, and further afield as well. Yeah. But um, but there's no reason why it couldn't take place anywhere, really, isn't it? Yeah. All, the, these no, things build. Yeah, I mean, it's the 16th of October, which I believe is midweek, so people are they're also doing it either side of that on, mm -hmm. a, on a weekend, obviously. So, I mean, anybody, I'm sure, could do their own thing and just, uh, you know get that training out there, get that CPR out there, first aid training organisations, anyone could, could, could organise a day and get some publicity from it and let people know how important it is to learn, to learn CPR and, use, you know, familiarise themselves with a defibrillator. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, if, you, if you can teach these youngsters, they, they pick it up so easy and they're so happy to play with this modern technology. And uh, they, they they take it on for the rest of their life. So it's it's you know they they just get into things without any hang-ups that parents and adults seem to get. That's brilliant. So coming to the end of our time together, I imagine. Um, I'm just wondering um, what else have you got? Um, what is next for for Sad UK apart from restart our heart a day and the uh, <laughs> and our conference? <laughs> well. Um, 
we're sort of planning quite a way ahead for um, it's called Stride to Stop SADS. Um, next year, May the 17th, um, if you can save the date, we're um, going, having a walk in Hyde Park and uh, the idea is that we raise awareness of the warning signs, um, we speak about the research we're doing and we get people to raise awareness, um, fundraise and, and help the charity with those aims to, to stop sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death. Um, we'll have a manifesto together and we'll also ask our members if they can get their MPs to sign that. Um, just really raising awareness this time to get more funding into the research and more more defibrillators out there and more people understanding if they could possibly be at risk and to seek medical advice and get treated. Okay, sounds great. So in Hyde Park, how far was that, did you say? Um, there's there's going to be, um, you can either do a, a two-mile or a six-mile walk. So it's it's not a long way, but um, it will be enough for people to meet together and to speak together and to, you know, help us raise the awareness and get that out there. Okay, sounds excellent. Okay, so I think we're just about finished for today's episode and I'd just like to uh, reiterate my thanks to Anne and John uh, for their time and also for their incredible um, work since they started their their charity and their, their, their obvious sad situation that caused it to come around. But I think, um, I think everyone would agree they've done absolutely the memory of Ashley really proud and uh, it's been a fantastic uh, to know you guys as well and uh, thank you for your help thank you so thanks a lot